Good morning, grace and peace. Good to be here with you today. Um, Baron Rothschild said many years ago that the way to become wealthy is to invest when there is blood on the streets, even if the blood is yours. I'd say that the way to real wealth is to invest in your soul and in your heart when there's blood on the streets. Because uh, when there's blood on the streets, when there's tough financial times, we see what our priorities are. We see how our mood is effective. Uh, We see uh, where our hopes and our security truly lies. And as we are probably at the door of a new recession, this is an important season for all of us to reevaluate our priorities, to reevaluate our hopes and our longings in a season such as this. The story that we are going through and we started last week is the story of Abraham. Last week, we learned that Abraham had been called by God into this quest. He had to leave his comforts and his security in pursuit of that. He journeys on. That's what we read in the last verse that we read last week of chapter 12. And here we find ourselves in this passage in chapter 13, where Abram has to make a very important economic financial decision. And it's in that situation that we are able to see where his priorities lie, where his heart is truly at. And I believe that in this narrative, we can find encouragement for our own selves as we wrestle with this issue of finances and wealth. Unfortunately for many of us Christians, uh, on the wrestling mats with this idea of finances and wealth, we have experienced a lot of defeat. And it is God's intent that you would experience victory there. And that you would not only experience wealth, but real wealth. So let's turn to uh, Genesis chapter 13. And we're going to read from verses 2 through 17. This is what the Word of God says. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Parasites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. 
And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zohar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, there, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are at, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. This is the word of the Lord. As today we uh, meditate and ponder on what real wealth is, I want us to look at three things. Number one, the truth about wealth. What does the Bible teach about wealth? Then I, I I like us to consider the dangers of wealth. And then lastly, what does real wealth look like in our lives and in our context? So first, uh, what's the truth about wealth? Uh, a, a lot of people that are Christians sometimes have a problem with wealth. Uh, sometimes we see it with uh, negative eyes. Uh, we judge sometimes people that are wealthy and are successful Uh, But the truth of the matter is that the Bible says that there's nothing sinful, there's nothing wrong about being wealthy. Uh, There's actually uh, nothing wrong in desiring to be wealthy. Uh, The Bible teaches that the origin of wealth is of the Lord. So we read here in this passage what verses 2, verse 5, and where verse 6 teaches was that Abraham and his Uh, nephew Lot, they were both very, very wealthy, and we know where that came from. That was from God. Now, the danger that we have is sometimes to think that the reason why one has wealth is because of the decisions that they have made in life. It's because of their qualities and their attributes. Uh, We tend sometimes to look down at people Uh, who have no wealth, and we say underneath our breath, sometimes even openly, that the reason why they're in that situation is because they did not make the right decisions in life. It's because they have not worked as hard as I have or as others have had. But I want to challenge that thought in that there are people in this world, in this day and age, and even in this city, that have worked as hard as you have that have made good decisions in life and that do not have a fraction of what you have. Therefore, if anyone has wealth, it's because God has graced them with wealth. The Bible says in uh, James chapter 1, verse 17, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. It is all by the grace of God. It is not 
because God rewards people that are obedient and people that uh, apparently have a better moral backbone than others. It's none of that. It's all by grace. And this story proves us that, doesn't it? Uh, what do we read at the end of chapter 12? So last week, uh, we learned that Abram finally arrives at Canaan. God calls him out of his father's uh, household, out of his comforts in Haram, and he finally arrives at Canaan. And he sets his tent there, and he builds an altar for the Lord there. But what we read later on in chapter 12 is that there was a famine that hit Canaan. And instead of staying where the Lord told him to stay, instead of unpacking his tent as the Lord told him never to do, he takes his family, he takes his possessions, he unpacks his tent, and he goes into Egypt. And that is his first mistake, obviously, because at that moment he had failed to trust that God would provide for him even during rough circumstances like the famine that they were going through. But then he gets there and he commits a second mistake. Uh, we read in chapter 12 that once they arrive in Egypt, that Pharaoh and the leadership in Egypt look at his wife because apparently she was really hot, Sarai. And, and they tell him that and they ask him, who is this woman? And he's afraid of losing his life because back then what powerful men would do if they wanted someone else's wife, hence the story of David, is that they would kill that woman's husband in order to possess that woman. And so he says, she's not my wife, she is my sister. And she is taken into uh, Pharaoh's harem. And in return, he receives more possessions and more wealth from Pharaoh. Until God starts to curse Pharaoh because this woman who is a daughter of God, is in his harem. And he begins to suspect and he comes up with the conclusion that there's something off about that story. And so he confronts Abram and Abram admits that she is his wife and she says, well, will you just get out of here, right? That's the first exodus in the Bible out of Egypt. Get out of here because I don't want any of these curses upon me. That's his second mistake. He failed to trust God one second time. And yet God still blesses him with wealth because wealth is a byproduct of the grace of God. Some people receive certain opportunities that others don't. And some people become wealthy and others don't. And it's all by the grace of God, which gives us an insight into the purpose by which God graces some of us with wealth and some with not. In fact, let me just also make this statement that uh, if you live in the United States and you have a job and you have a place to live, you are among the world's richest population. So just bear that in mind. Why is it that God graces some with wealth and others with not? Number one, for delight's purpose. There's nothing wrong for you to enjoy the things that God has given you. If God has given you the means to take a vacation in a faraway land in a comfortable hotel, by all means, do it. If God gives you the opportunity to buy a house in an affluent neighborhood, a comfortable place for your family, by all means, do it. A car, by all means, do it. But I want you to understand that the ultimate reason why God gives us wealth is not just for our delight, but it's what happens in chapter 12 when God calls Abraham out of his household. He says, I want to bless you so that you would be what? 
a blessing to others. So it is by grace and for grace. God intends that we would not take our wealth and build our identity and our sense of a significance around it, that we would not use it for control. There's a lot of people that use wealth for control. Maybe you come from a family that there was a patriarch, that the way in which he handled situations in the family was by throwing money here and there, and you know the effects of that. Maybe that's your case. That's how you control things, is by leveraging money over others. God did not give us money or wealth or any other type of resource, time, t- talents, and treasure, so that we can use it for control's purposes. He did not give it so that you would just accumulate it. The Bible is very clear about that. And Jesus actually condemns the life of a man that all he did was fill up his storehouses with grain. God did not give us money just for accumulation's purposes. Now, it's good and it's biblical for us to save money, but if accumulating money is your ultimate source of security, then there is a problem. That's not why God gave us money. It was to facilitate the lives of others, to bridge the gap between needs and people. That's ultimately why God gave us resources. That's why God gives anyone wealth. The ultimate purpose of that is to facilitate the human condition. And it makes me think that the reason sometimes why God does not give wealth to some is because of grace too. Because had they had access to wealth, not only would they destroy their lives, but destroy the lives of others. Not only would they lose their delight in God, but they would not use those resources to facilitate the lives of others, but only to build something for themselves. A while ago, I was having dinner with a friend who was telling me that he, many years ago, left his corporate job to try to broker a deal that could render him north of $40 million. He left his corporate career to do that. And he spent a lot of time brokering that deal. And he was telling us about the moment that he stepped into that room. It was one of the last meetings. And because of something that someone in one of the sides said, trust began to erode. And not only did he not have a job, but that deal never closed. And he said to us, I don't know what would have been of me had I put my hands on $40 million. Maybe I would have destroyed my lives and the lives of others. So God prevented me maybe from that evil. It's all because of grace for grace. Now, that gives us insight now into the second point, which is the danger uh, and the pitfalls of, of wealth and why we should be very careful and desiring and pursuing and wise in the way in which we handle wealth. The, 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 the first and main pitfall is, uh, is our overrated view of wealth and money. We have an overrated view of wealth and money, meaning we believe it, it is more than it actually is. We believe that it gives us more than it actually gives. One example of that is on the topic of wisdom. Why is it that we believe or wealthy and successful people believe that just because they've been successful in one area of life, hence business, they are successful in all areas of life and they can speak into anyone's life in any area of their lives? Why do we think that wealthy and successful people have wisdom when it comes to marriage? They are as messed up and as broken as we are. 
But sometimes, just because we believe that they were successful there, that they can also speak into a multiplicity of topics and that we would listen, should listen to them. We should respect their opinion more than others just because they have been successful. See, in this passage, you have two wealthy men. You have Abraham and you have Lot. They were both wealthy. One was very wise, Abraham, and, but sort of. He still messed up. And the other one was very stupid in the case of Lot. Just because you're wealthy does not mean that you are wise. Money and wealth does not deliver in all of its promises. We have an overrated view of it. So here in this story, what happens? A problem arises. A situation comes up. Uh, they return back to the land of Canaan after wandering off into Egypt. They now come back to the very place where he had set an altar first in the beginning of chapter 12. So here, here they're back. And uh, they are too big for the place where they're at. Um, Lot is very wealthy. Abraham is very wealthy. If they stay where they're at together, they will cap each other's growth. And so Abram looks at Lot, as their herdsmen are already fighting over the land, that's what the text tells us, and he says to Lot, listen, we don't need to fight over this, okay, this land is vast, you know, just look, all around it's vast, we don't have to stay in this spot, why don't you pick a place, if you go east, I will go west, if you go west, I will go east, no problem." Let's stay within the boundaries of Canaan, this land that the Lord said that he would give us. But you can stay in any corner of it, and I'll just move the other way. And the text tells us in verse 10, I don't know if you noticed this, that Lot, by the way, where he's at with Abram, uh, they're in this high ground. And he looks down about 3,000 feet down towards the valley of Jordan, the Jordan Valley which is nowadays, if you have the opportunity to go there, those who uh, have been to Israel have seen this. Um, you're talking here by uh, that, that, that border between Israel and Jordan where you have the Dead Sea. So, so he looks down and he sees water there. And his decision is not a decision that is based on the relationship. He doesn't care about his uncle. His decision, the decision that he makes in verse 10, is solely informed by the possibility of more profit. He says, where can I make the most amount of money? You know, you have cattle. You need water. Where can I make the most amount of money? He looks, there's water. And by the way, Abraham knew that he would choose that, that spot. And he chooses that spot. And in his choosing, in verse 10, we read this, that he looked at those plains as the garden of the Lord. That's what verse 10 says. He looked at it as the garden of the Lord. And this is not just a, a, a historical uh, information that we receive here in verse 10. I was reading a biblical commentator by the name of Robert Alter, who is an authority in the Old Testament. He says there's more to that statement than just what he sees in the land. He sees more than a possibility of profit or of increasing his wealth. He sees the possibility of joy and meaning and significance in it. Because the garden of the Lord, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, going back to the first few chapters of Genesis, the garden of the Lord is Eden. 
the place where humanity flourished under the presence of God, where our joy was complete. And since our forefathers, Adam and Eve, have been kicked out of that garden, all we're trying to do is to return to that place. Every decision that we're making in life, every pursuit in life, now you may not know this, but underneath it all, it's your desire to return to that space of joy and wealth and perfect fellowship with God where everything flourishes. And he looks at that possibility of wealth as something that would satisfy that longing in his soul. Now, maybe you're here today and you haven't looked at the possibility of becoming wealthy as the garden of the Lord. But maybe you've looked at romance as the garden of the Lord. Maybe you have looked at somebody in your life and you say, if I have that person, if I marry this person, oh, my life will be a garden. I will find the ultimate joy and satisfaction that my heart is ultimately longing for. Maybe it's the perfect image that you look at as the garden of the Lord. Maybe. Now, let me tell you why this is a problem. Because what Lot wants is the garden of the Lord without the Lord. And what we want when we've set our eyes and we set our hands and we set our time in pursuing certain things is we want these things to become gardens to us, but not with the Lord. We want it independently from God. And what I want you to understand in the scriptures is that anything that you put your hands on or you set your eyes on, your thought life is devoted to, that the Lord is not in it. It will never be a garden, but it will turn back into a desert. And some of you have gotten to the places, to the plains of Jordans in your life that you've looked at as the garden of the Lord. And maybe it was a relationship, and maybe it was a job, and you arrived there, and all of a sudden, you have noticed that it's also a desert. That your geographic environment in a spiritual sense, did not change. It remained the same. Some of you have reached the top of your career. Some of you have achieved your financial goals or your romantic goals. You thought that you were marrying Prince Perfect. And all I can say is that you've been disappointed. <laughs> it's still a desert all around. Because the Lord was not in it. Anytime the Lord is anywhere, it's always a garden. But when the Lord is not, it's just barren, dry land. And Lot finds that out as we continue to read the story in chapters 14 and 15. By the way, Lot moves to the border of the area that God had delineated for Abraham and his family. He's at the very border of Canaan. But as time goes on in his life, he moves more and more outside of those boundaries. And like I said, if the Lord is not in it, the land is barren. He sets his eyes on a city, on a people group. He moves into Sodom. We know the story of Sodom. And in the process, because the Lord is not in it, and when the Lord is not in it, there's no flourishing. There's no shalom. Things do not stand in its place, but they begin to fall apart. There's breakdown. He loses his whole family's security. He loses his house and even his wife. His family is destroyed in the process because he desired the garden of the Lord without the Lord. 
Is there anything in your life that you're looking at as the garden of the Lord that fills your eyes when you look at it? It may be numbers. It may be people. It may be contemplating a move. It may be a, a real estate piece that it fills your eyes every time you look at it. It may be a career. It may be a position. It fills your eyes when you look at it. Are you looking at it as the garden of the Lord? And do you want the garden without the Lord? There's nothing good that can come out of wanting the garden without the Lord. That is the danger of wealth. So we arrive at this place where we must ask this very important question. How is it that we can avoid the dangers and the pitfalls of wealth, especially as we're very encouraged to pursue that in our culture, how can we avoid those pitfalls and actually experience real wealth in our lives in a way that we fulfill the purpose by which God blesses us with any resource that we may have, that we become a blessing to others? And what I want to tell you is that real wealth has nothing to do with that which surrounds you, that which clothes you. It has nothing to do with any of that because it's a condition of the inside. I've heard one time someone say that rich people are so poor because money, it's all they have. And that's true. Real wealth is something that's independent of circumstances. It's independent of material possessions. There are people that have both, and that's what we see here in this story, but it's possible to have one and not the other. Here's the main indication of what real wealth looks like in our lives. Number one, rest. Now, Abram allows Lot to make that decision. And that's not just something that he does as a nice old man, okay? We, we read it at first, we're like, oh, what a nice old man. He, he lets the younger one choose. No, this is a radical choice of Abraham because back in those days, the patriarch chooses. The eldest in the clan chooses. He is the 500-pound gorilla that sits wherever he wants to. Back in those days, what was expected was for Abraham to say, hey, I'm going down there where there's water. You find out wherever you want to go, and that's your business. That's what would have happened back then. But he does not do that. And the reason why he does not do that, number one, I'll tell you another reason soon, but the number one reason is because he rests in the promise of God. He has learned the hard way that when there was a famine and he went to Egypt, things did not go so well for him. So he has learned because God teaches us hard lessons through life to mature us and to build our character. So he's learned that lesson before and he says, this time, I'm just going to let him choose my trust and my hope and my security when it comes to my future and my wealth lies not in the hand of Lot, not in my decision, but in the hands of God. And so he says, you choose, son. And he knows, like I said before, what Lot was going to choose. He knows that Lot would choose the fertile ground versus where they're currently at. He rests in the promises of God. Now, now let me ask you a question. I want you to, sorry, I want you to think this through here today. First, why is it that we go about pursuing wealth? Why is it that as the herdsmen of both of them, we end up getting in 
relational trouble, we experience relational breakdown, we're backstab, we backstab others, we work late hours, we destroy our bodies, we destroy our soul in the process. Why is it that we pursue it relentlessly? It's because we want rest. That's why we're doing it. That's why you're doing it. That's why you're working the late hours. That's why you're trying to impress your boss and to get the promotion. It's because you want rest. You're looking for rest. You're looking for favorable opinions of others. You want to be able to walk into a room. You want to be able to walk into a space and not have to worry that people are looking down on you. So you want to be able to afford certain clothes. You, you want to be able to have certain diplomas in your wall. You, you want to be able to uh, have people talk about your success. That's what we're looking for, for rest from the critics, rest from the gossipers. That's what we're wanting. We are looking for some type of anesthetic to numb us from the harsh realities of life. And that's why we buy the toys and the cars and we, you know, work so hard to get those things. It's because we're looking for rest. It's because you want to have a strong safety net. You don't want to be in the hands of circumstances and in the future, you want to know that if a tragedy or if a crisis or a recession happens and hits and takes place, that your kids, your family, yourself, you're going to be taken care of. We are looking for rest. It's the reason why there is always this restlessness, even when we go to sleep, when we lay in bed. We can't fully rest we can't, because we're thinking about the work the next day because we're looking for rest. But here's, here's, here's the truth and a poignant question. The second main question I want to ask you in this sub-point, and that is, what if, what if, think about this. I want, to, I want to activate your imagination now. What if God could give you that which your heart is truly longing for without killing yourself in the process? What if God could say, hey, what you're looking for in all these things is rest. Let me tell you, it's just rest. What if I can give you that? And you bypass the whole process. It's like you want to lose 50 pounds and somebody comes to you and say, hey, I'm going to flick my finger. You don't have to do the diet. You don't have to do all the workout. You're just going to lose 50 pounds just like that. Who wouldn't want that, right? God is saying, hey, you don't have to kill yourself in the process. I'll give you that rest right now. What if? And the truth of the matter is that he can and he is able to give us this rest if, number two, here's what real wealth looks like. That's, that's ultimate. Uh, if we know him, if we enter into a relationship with him, the rest is conditioned upon knowing God. What is Abram's greatest wealth in the text that we read? Is that what we read in the first few verses in verse 2 and 3? All the cattle, all the silver, and all the gold. His real wealth here in this narrative? Or, or is it what we read from verse 14 onward? The Lord said to Abram, there's a conversation. There's a relationship. And it's out of that relationship that he actually has what we read in 2 and 3. His greatest wealth is not what we read in the beginning. His greatest wealth is what we read at the end of this passage. Is knowing God. Is having a relationship with him. 
is depositing your ultimate hopes and trust in him. And the reason why there are so many poor rich people is because they let God in their lives. They do not possess a relationship with God. And that's why they're so stressed out. That's why they can't go to bed at night because they have to work for themselves. Because they don't believe in the words of the psalmist that the Lord gives to his children while they sleep. See what I'm saying? It's real wealth. Money cannot buy this. In fact, money increases that trouble. Money cannot buy your sleep. Money cannot buy peace. Money cannot bring full flourishing into your life. It's a great tool, don't get me wrong, and it helps you, it helps others, but it does not get you what your heart truly longs for. Knowing God is real wealth. And how do we know that Abraham had this real wealth? You know, we, we read verses 14 onward that God is speaking to him, but how do we know that his relationship was locked in on God? How do we know that this was something crucial and important and central to his life by the way in which he makes his decision? There's something else about allowing Lot to choose. See, Abram knew that he could not have all three things at once. He could not have his relationship with God, his relationship with his nephew, and the success of his business all at once. He needed to make a choice. Now, I was thinking about this. He could have come up to Lot and said, hey, Lot, um, this land is small enough for the two of us, and I know both of us want to stay here. Tell you this, let's go together to somewhere, some other place that's a lot more vast, a lot more broad, and, and we can stay there together. Let's do that. He could have done that. But had he done that, he would have walked outside of the boundaries of the promise of the Lord that told him to stay in Canaan. So he would have saved his relationship with his nephew. He would have protected the integrity of his business, the future of his business, but he would have jeopardized his relationship with God. So he does not do that. And what he does instead is he says to Lot, you choose. Why? Because he refuses to leave the boundaries of the promise of God. Because he refuses to put wealth ahead of his relationship with his nephew. And so there you see the priorities. God first, people second, and money third. And when you see that in someone's life, you know that that flows from a place of a deep-seated relationship with God. You know, like the author of Hebrews later on says about Abraham, that his true foundation was on the city of God and his relationship with God. See, when that is true, you serve God, you serve people, and you use money. When it's not there, what happens is you serve money and you end up using God and using people. And we don't want to be a people. We don't want to be a community. We don't want to be followers of Jesus that serve money and use God and use people. We want to serve God first, people then second, and we want to use money for both. That's what we want to be. Isn't that what you want to be? And that is where you find the secret of true wealth is when you give it up to God. You're not bargaining with God. You're not using money for power. You're not making decisions based, based just on money. You're not, using, like, you're not using your money to control the opinions of people. But because you serve God, you say, God, what, where is it that you want? Like, it's not 
God saying to you, where do you want to put your money? It's you saying to God, God, where do you want me to put my money? It's, we get reversed. And God says, no, where's your foundation? Look at Abraham. Look at him. And listen, Abraham is no better than you and I. Look at his story in the previous chapter. He's, he's not holier than you and I. He messes up and we mess up, but there's always this return. In fact, by him returning to the original place where he was, this is the, this is the journey of repentance. What the journey of repentance looks like, he goes back to the altar of the Lord that he had erected as saying, I messed up and this time I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do things differently. That's what happens. So how can we truly know God and experience the rest that comes from it? How can we experience true wealth in our lives and avoid the pitfalls and the dangers of wealth? Through the ultimate, Abram, the truer and better Abram. Thousands of years later, uh, a son of Abram, actually the promise, the ultimate promised son of Abram, he is also taken up into a pinnacle. And he's given the choice to receive all the wealth of the world if he puts God at the bottom of the list. If he puts you and I, his project of redemption and salvation, at the bottom of the list. And he refuses to do so. Jesus refuses to put his wealth and his power ahead of the Father's will, ahead of you and I. Had he done that, he would have never left his comfort above. Philippians 2 would have never been written in the Bible. But because Jesus refuses to put his comfort and his wealth and his power ahead of you and I, and he becomes poor for our sakes, we can be rich in him. We can experience his true wealth. True wealth comes from Jesus. Only Jesus can give you this true wealth because it's something that he fought for. He exchanged what he had for what you and I have, which is not good, so that we can have what he had. That's the gospel. That's the narrative of the gospel. And it's to the degree that you and I understand this. It's to the degree that we see Jesus as the truer and better Abram fighting for us the lots of life and putting us ahead of wealth and power that we find the power to put him ahead of anything else and to put the needs of others ahead of our own as we go about living our lives as true followers of Jesus. That is our hope for you. That is our wish for you. And that God would increase the resources. May he increase all the resources that you have in life, not for your own sake, but for his glory and for the sake of others. Will you pray with me?